Welcome back to the Grit and Grace Space. Today we are joined by the completely wonderful Felicia. Felicia and I met through work and this co-worker relationship has quickly blossomed into a budding friendship. In this episode, we will dive into Felicia's background, a challenging relationship, and sweet blessings that were on the other side. My biggest takeaway was that letting go and giving yourself grace to not be perfect can be so transformative and better than you would imagine. I hope that you enjoy this peek into a seemingly everyday person who is, in reality, extraordinary inside and out. Here we go. Yes, so on this Monday, a lot of week of change, coincidences coming together. Talk more about that. Talk about something else. It's it's about a topic that I'm not quite, I'm on the cusp of learning about, and I don't know how to talk about it yet. Okay. It's basically starting to date again. It's very different. I'm not quite ready to share that yet, but we can talk offline, you and I, if we want to. Yeah, for sure. So backing up a little bit, I met Felicia Romero on a business trip to Japan, oddly enough, where she was the expert in one field and I was a point of contact for another subject matter. And we were both meeting to work with a team through some new processes and things that they were maybe less familiar with. We resultingly spent a week together in Japan and that included dinners and some karaoke (laughs) and we sort of just clicked in a way that was for me at least unique and special and we're also we were both like we're both around the same age where This is the year of turning 30. (laughs) And while I have experienced that circumstance, Felicia is on the brink of turning 30 later this year. So all of that to say we were in a similar age group with the team that traveled with us. We were probably 10 years younger than the next oldest person, maybe. And so had that sort of going for us as well. And... Now we are connecting again because I am up in Maine for another work event, and this is where Felicia lives. And so I figured maybe she would be interested in doing a podcast with me. And so here we are. We just finished a lovely dinner, and we're going to sort of get into Felicia's story, starting with growing up on the West Coast in Washington and all sorts of twists and turns that connected our souls together here in Maine today. So I will turn it over to Felicia and kick us off. Oh gosh, where to begin? It's a funny question when somebody asks you, tell me about yourself, right? And you have to figure out, well, how much do you really want to know? You talked about, okay, so I guess let's take it from the top. Yeah, I'm from Washington. I'm from Western Washington. That's where I was born and raised. East of Seattle, tech-heavy field. What's what's kind of interesting to how we got there, though? So t- some perspective, right? My name is Felicia. But if you saw me, you wouldn't think my name is Felicia because my mom is Korean, full-on Korean, grew up in post-war Korea on dirt floors and 
pretty much clawed her way through education at a time when women didn't go to school, didn't go to college, really. Long story short, she became a French language major, and she spoke English. And that's how she ended up meeting my father, who was over there on a business trip. He was in the, he was an electrical engineer, and his specialty was radio waves. And he ended up in the cell phone industry at the start of it all. So he was over there doing some business with, I can't remember if it was Samsung or LG, one of those companies. And he ended up meeting my mom because, or through a mutual friend, because she could speak English. And I think they ended up having some sort of whirlwind romance. I consider my my parents romantics, right? Long story short, about a year later, she moves to the States with my father. And they go to Arizona State University. They get their master's. They start a family. So I have an older brother by about seven years. My sister's older, or she came next, and she's older by five years from me. And then they moved around a little bit before I was born. And then by the time I was born, was in Washington. And then that's where they settled. So were your brother and your sister also born in Washington, or they were in Arizona? They were actually born in Arizona, in the Phoenix area. Okay. And so you you were born in Washington, and that's sort of where life begins for Felicia with <laughs> a Spanish father and a Korean mother, a mix that you don't often see. I don't know anybody else with that sort of background. I think it's a very common California mix, but usually mm. they meet in California, not on the other side of the world. But yes, yeah, in background, so my father, his his parents are from the Southwest, so his his mom is from El Paso. My grandfather was from outside Albuquerque. And they actually ended up meeting in California when my grandfather was stationed out there and my grandma had since moved out to California. And then since then moved around quite a bit as my grandfather was in the Navy. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably where my dad's kind of travel bug came for, kind of that sense of being willing to go to new places and feel comfortable going to places like Korea, where he met my mom. And then since traveling around from there. So growing up as a younger sibling with a fairly older brother and five-year-ish older sister, what was the dynamic like? I guess looking back on it, maybe you weren't able to tell at the time in terms of like sibling relationships, like comrades through the experiences that you went through as in childhood. Tell me about that. Gosh. So being the youngest sibling, I was kind of a punk. Okay. (laughs) The punk younger sister, right? Who always wants to hang out with the older kids and hang out with their friends. I really look up to both my brother and sister and always did as a kid too. Whether looking at them, because whether they realize it or not, they're always my role models, whether Mm -hmm. in a positive light or negative light, watching them and saying, those are things that I want to be like, or those are things I don't think I'm going to make the same decisions. It's kind of interesting. So in 2001, my mom decided that she wanted to be a business owner. And she bought a deli. She bought a restaurant. And for seven years, we had what we called affectionately the deli. It's called Totem Deli and has since gone now. But so we grew up kind of as a family unit, starting to like work in the deli together mm-hmm. as a family business. But when I was eight years old, my parents finally decided to get divorced, which is a big relief because there was always tension in the household. Like they, despite I think reality set in pretty early on after they got together Mm. and the relationship just, it wasn't good for either of them, but then you have kids, life goes on and you just try to survive, I guess. But come 
2003 or three, four, kind of in that time frame, they decided like, okay, this is, this is what's going to happen and we're going to split from here. So my earliest, so most of my life has been kind of this, it starts with this kind of separation of family. Mm-hmm. We all kind of go our different ways, right? We're all learning how to deal with the divorce and the breakdown of our family unit. When you say uh, we, is ways. that your brother and sister? Or is that all five of you? I'd say it's all of us, okay. right? No, everyone that you're around is always learning how to be who they are in that time, right? It's like, we're all learning how to be our current age because we've never been there before. Yeah. How was the oldest we've ever been? And I recognize it's like, we all kind of dealt with it, dealt with it in our own ways. And I think we all kind of went off into our own worlds. My dad went off into his own, in his own world. My mom went off into her own world. Brother and sister, much older, they went off to high school and college. And then I was left at home. And So it was home for you then with your mom? Like in the deli or with your dad? Like what what, what did that look like for you? So custody-wise, I was mostly with my mom. And then I would go to my dad's every other weekend. Mm. And that was preferred because I got along better with my mom than Mm -hmm. my dad. So I wanted to stay with her more so. And that's really what she wanted to. And speaking of the devil, she's going to well, FaceTime her. <laughs> hey, mom, tell us a story about the tiger that you confronted in the mountains of Korea. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the best story. <laughs> what were you talking about? So, yeah, so I, I mostly stayed with my mom, but they had joint custody, so I'd go to my dad's, too. And that was kind of, honestly, I don't really remember too much about that because I don't like to think about it as mm-hmm. much because I didn't really understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. But at the same time... I don't think I'd like let it show to my parents because I could see particularly my mom struggling through this all mm-hmm. as she's confronting what she feels like an utter failure in her life and is going through this major transformation. Right. And this was maybe shortly after the deli started. Yeah, probably within like this all started probably, I think, about two years after they purchased the deli. And so you have this legal separation that has to occur and all the stuff that they handled behind the scenes. And then she kept the deli and we continued to run it up until just before the recession hit. Okay. And then when the recession came in 2008, we, yeah, I think it was in the fall of 2008 was when we finally closed down. Wow. So, yeah. So at that point in time, five years later, your brother's like high school age, your sister's maybe, maybe your sister's high school age and your middle school age? Let's see. I had just started ninth grade, I think. Okay. So my brother had actually gone to college for a year and ended up coming back home Okay, after that. He actually went to ASU for a year, probably partied a little too hard and then came back home. The Harvard of the West, I hear, is what they call it. <laughs> oh, is that what they're calling themselves now? <laughs> But yeah, he so he went to Arizona State for a year, didn't, I think, just embrace the culture a little too much and then came home. And then my sister went up and went to Western Washington University, so closer by, but still away from home. And so that was kind of an interesting time. Just after the deli closed down, there is a bunch of this change. My mom got into real estate and I'm there just like mostly alone at home for the most time because my mom is out there trying to work. My dad at this point, where was he? He was still in the state, but shortly after moved to California for work due to the recession changes and everything. 
Honestly, those are pretty interesting times. I remember feeling cool hanging out with my brother. I was in a high school physics class at the time. We had junior high, so you wouldn't actually go to junior high for those classes. You had to go to the high school up the hill. I see. And so I was in ninth grade physics class. And I just have really fond memories of like staying up late, going to my brother and being like, hey, Furman, how do I do this problem? And while he's there trying to figure out his own life, he would stop and like help me do homework and teach me how to do physics. So I accredit a lot of my knowledge to that to him because he really helped me like walk through it step by step when my parents never really did that. And I imagine that was a bonding experience too. Like as a brother and sister, you said you looked up to your siblings quite a bit. And so I imagine he was able to sort of fulfill that for you, but also recognize what, like how much he meant to you maybe. I hope so. I I only told him again recently about that. I'm like, do you remember when we used to stay up 11, 12, 12 at night doing physics homework and you taught me how to do this and you gave me your graphing calculator, which I still have and still use in my master's class. Oh. And like we, we got through these homework assignments together when I had no idea what I was doing. And he really helped me become like the engineer I am today. And, Which uh, is, for the audience, a badass engineer who is <laughs> above and beyond anything you could imagine. Back to you. So it was a really different time. He was going through his own his own stuff. Then I think we were all processing the breakdown of our family in different ways. Mm -hmm. He definitely like partied a lot more, hung out with interesting characters, and was an interesting character himself. Well, my sister kind of separated herself more so from the families at the college and was off in her own world, too. It sounds like there is a lot of sort of turning in, like individually, everybody is turning in. So maybe when you're ready to come back up for air, you feel like still isolated, even though you might not want to be. Or was that not necessarily the case? You had people to go to. I would say that's very much the case. So okay. During this time, right, we weren't, we always knew that we all loved each other, but I don't know if we understood what we were going through, could articulate it, and could express the sense of, I think, loss and grief that we were all going through without even realizing, because we're still growing up, learning about the world, learning who we are, and right. just trying to, like, survive on the day-to-day. -day. Yeah, life goes on. You're still having to go to school every day and do your homework, and your mom's like closing a business and starting a new way to provide for her family and your dad's not as close as he was. Exactly. And it was like really like I remember like she would come home really late at night too. Sometimes he'd be in bed before she even came home. That's how long she was out there meeting clients or doing this or that or going to I don't know, hang out with her friends. Whatever whatever she was doing to survive. But I knew she was struggling greatly. And I try to do everything in my ability to make sure that I was never a burden to her because I wanted to make sure that she didn't have to worry about one more thing, which is me. So I made sure to do my schoolwork and do all this stuff. And honestly, through that process, I realized I didn't really get like the emotional support I probably needed. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I recognize that she wasn't available for that because she's barely keeping it together herself through this like really difficult time. For sure. So how did a moment ago you said that you were like the punk rock younger sibling? How did that play into this seemingly opposite dynamic where you, it sounds like you're 
a performer, pleasing in a way to not come off as a burden. That's that's a whole thing that could be impact. But those two ideas seem to contrast with each other a little bit. See, that's interesting. I think they're so the way that I was was extremely stubborn, and I'm probably still stubborn in a lot of ways, but stubborn to show like, no, look, I'm fine. I'm great. Like, don't have to worry about me. I got this. Pretending that everything is fine and putting up a front mm. when you probably actually should have asked for help, but to make sure that I wasn't, that my mom was cared for in a way that she didn't have to worry about me in addition to everything else that she's worrying about, mm. right? I don't know how many... Kids also saw like sometimes their mom just like spontaneously burst into tears while they're like doing she's doing laundry because of something that's going on that she tried. She did her best to keep away from us. But you just knew that there was like the sadness. Right. And anxiety and anger as she is going through her own process of realizing that her marriage of 20 something years ended Mm -hmm. and that here's where she is. She has three kids to care for. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the recession. It's post recession time. So it's kind of all kind of an interesting several years there. Right. And so, yeah, real estate during the recession, I imagine that was even more of a nightmare that you guys maybe weren't even exposed to, had no idea. I would get snippets of it, but of course, as a teen, you don't really understand. Mom has a heart of gold. Mm. She is someone who will give herself completely to somebody else to help them go out of her way to the point where I'm like, mom, you got to start sending some boundaries here. Like you are way overworked here. So, but the reason I talk about this is during the recession, she loved helping people get great deals on homes that were foreclosed. Oh, okay. So that's kind of what her business model was there. And honestly, Mm -hmm. if those people still own the houses that she helped them get at those prices with Seattle housing market prices, oh my God, they're set. So how does that play into you talked earlier dinner about your mom being so rooted in her Korean culture and so sacrificial and not really standing up for the individual. And that sort of sounds like it plays into how she was like very servant-minded as a realtor and maybe as a mom. But is there more to that where like you talk about her work life, but Did you experience that in other ways as a child or maybe only seeing that happen to other individuals? So this is a very interesting concept. I'm trying to figure out how to how to talk about it. The the best description I've read about this was actually in Michelle Zahner's book, Crying in H Mart, where she so she is the lead singer of a band called Japanese Breakfast. And she is also half Korean. Her mom's Korean. She also grew up in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon. And she writes about her experiences with having a Korean mom and an American father. And it's it was so strikingly. She put she like hit the nail on the head. And she said in, in her book, she's like, my mom was not a mommy mom where you have a mom that's like really nurturing and caring and really affectionate. Like, oh, my God, like if you got an injury would she say oh my god are you okay no she wouldn't do that she'd just be like looking at you and be like oh you're fine get up so it's very like cold in a lot of ways but at the same time you knew there was this undying love that she has towards you right it's just extremely indirect yeah it's the plate of cut up fruit that she'll come and bring you right this showing affection through food type of thing it's it's hugely cultural which i've come to learn later it's not just my mom it's like it's definitely a large part of korean culture a lot more emotionally detached and 
I'm still trying to figure out how much of that's cultural and how much of that's her, maybe her own specific circumstances growing up. But uh, yeah, super, super giving. We'll go out of your way to help, go way out of her way to help you. But at the same time, when being raised, she was a lot more emotionally detached. But I think she had to be because that's all she could really do as she's fighting her own battles at the time and learning how to survive, essentially. Mm -hmm. So you go through high school and it's time to go off to college and you leave Washington and go to your parents' alma mater, Arizona State. (laughs) You said you loved the desert, wanted sort of a change of scenery from the Pacific Northwest. What was that experience like from sort of like leaving home and kind of becoming yourself on your own, but also it sounds like you were doing a lot of that growing up, like individual independence, even as a child. So like, was there a big contrast when you did go to college or do you feel like you sort of blended well into that phase of life? So I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about like the sense of independence. I definitely grew up very independent and that's why leaving to go to another state wasn't so jarring. Mm. But of course, the experience of moving anywhere new is going to be very, very different. But I was, I look back now and I realize I was probably a pretty depressed kid. Mm. Gloomy, Pacific Northwest, always damp. Home wasn't super great all the time. Just because you didn't have that emotional support that you really wanted to. Not that I blame my parents or anything for that, but that was just our circumstances. And uh, I wanted something new, warm, bright, fresh. And I happened to get a scholarship to ASU. And that's how I ended up that down there too. And uh, that was honestly a pretty difficult transition. Hmm. Fortunately, they had, we have old family friends down there, a couple who my dad has known since his early, early days as an engineer. And uh, their names are Dave and Cheryl. And Dave and Cheryl are basically like my aunt and uncle. They're in their mid-70s now, but they're down there and they welcomed me with open arms and kind of helped me get set up down there. But the first couple of years were pretty hard. It was pretty hard to be in a different area, very anxious because I didn't really know what I was doing. And I don't know, just being in a different area, it's like sometimes I got that feeling where I wanted to like crawl out of my skin. I was so uncomfortable. Hmm. But by end of sophomore year, junior, junior year, I started to really hit my stride made a really great group of friends and really ended up enjoying enjoying my college experience, but took a little bit, bit of a slow starter, I guess. For sure. So is that friend group, you think, what sort of helped pull you out of that funk or were there other things that? That's a great question. I think it's both. I think it's the friend group. I think it's finally feeling like I kind of understood my coursework a little bit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Engineering school is not necessarily easy. But uh, I think you have to keep from crying. Yeah, yeah. I remember long all-nighters and uh-huh. just days just ripping your hair out in the library because you have no idea what you're doing. Yeah, you get a two out of ten on a fluids test. And you're like, I don't know <laughs> what my future holds, but sure. It's it's like <laughs> I was there. I got like a 40 on my first test. So I got mad and then I got like a 90 on the second oh, one. So I was like, I just can't be like that anymore. But uh, yeah, I think it was the friend group for sure. Like having that's like having like your clan, mm-hmm. right? And, and that felt really, really great, right? Because you want that type of camaraderie and it helps kind of s- keep the loneliness at bay, which I think as a kid, I had a really strong sense of loneliness and you always felt like you were missing something. And I didn't feel that way when I was with my friends. How did you meet your friend group? Was it through classes or social stuff? 
through classes. So we yeah. ended up, I know, we all kind of just kind of like coalesced together. We were on the same major. Mm-hmm. So we go from class to class together and uh, hit it off from there. Yeah. Uh, that's so special because you're also going through such a difficult time and doing that with friends sort of bonds you. And so you're connected on this deeper level. We just survived the experience together. <laughs> we travel bonded together. Yeah. The first perfect. Exactly. And it sounds like you're still really close friends with a handful of those guys still. Yeah, I am. It's we kind of went our separate ways for a little bit. So after school, I actually ended up I went back to Washington for a little bit. One thing we didn't talk about through this is I actually just before I left school or for school, I got into a relationship with someone who is several years older than me. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was that sense of love and companionship and mm-hmm. kind of nurturing that I didn't really have before. And I cared deeply for him, right? And we ended up doing long distance the entire time I was in school. What was that like? Was it, did you visit each other at all? Or how was the communication style through all of that? We would communicate daily through text. And then as we could during school breaks and stuff, either he would come to me or I would go back home. Mm-hmm. So, and that was, I think, a very different experience. And as I look back, I'm like, I don't really know what I was doing, but we talked about that stubbornness and that independence. So it's like nobody could tell me to do otherwise yep. because I was making my own decisions and I'm going to do this. Like, watch me. So part of that kind of like staunch independence helps you survive through these times. But on the other hand, it can kind of backfire on you. Right. Which we can talk about. But so at the time after school ended, we moved in together in Washington, in Tacoma, actually, Mm -hmm. Tacoma, Washington, outside of Seattle. And it was a matter of, okay, the job that he was working at didn't work, didn't end up working, working. He was supposed to be working with a startup restaurant mm-hmm. and the guy lost, pretty much went bankrupt and lost his resources. So this kitchen that he was a part of, he didn't get paid for. Yeah. And it became this quick, this like scrambling, mm-hmm. like putting out applications and say, whoever gets a job first, let's go there. Got it. And I ended up getting a job out in southern Wisconsin working for a polyurethane processor. So they manufactured parts out of high performance polyurethane. Okay. Mostly wheels and tires for like fork trucks, okay. the material handling industry. So the raw material that goes to the, that would then turn into a tire, turn into something else. So as a processor, we would take the raw material, uh-huh. mix it, and then make the products out of that. So that's what they mean by processor. So I didn't okay. actually manufacture the raw chemicals, but we took those and created processes to then make parts out of them. Okay. And so I guess like at a tire plant, though, they're receiving in raw material. That's maybe what you would deliver to like go through the process of making a tire. Or was the tire plant like part of what you were involved in as well? Let's see. Oh, gosh. So the tire plant was what I was involved with. So we would receive the chemicals in like large 55-gallon drums. Then they would pour those into machines that would then mix it, add colorant and stuff. And then mm. from there, they would dispense them into molds and make tires and oh, interesting. other parts out of that. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they were molded. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's different than how car tires are made, though. Correct. Yes. Got it. Okay. So that's rubber. This is polyurethane. Got it. Which is a, it's a hot cast process, but yeah. Okay. 
So, so is that the same? This is a total tangent, <laughs> but I'm very curious and maybe everybody can learn something about tires today. Is this, are these the same kind of tires, tires that you would see on tractors or are they smaller? They're typically smaller. They can go up to like 36 inches in outer diameter. Wow. But the most tires that you see on fork trucks, a lot of them are rubber. But okay. if you use polyurethane tires, they're non-marking. So they don't leave skid marks like on your floor. Mm -hmm. But they also can handle a lot more weight. And weight. They're solid. Yeah. So mm -hmm. they don't have air inside of them. Yeah. So every time a fork truck goes by, I'm always checking out the tires to be like, what have they got on there? Yeah. <laughs> How good are these bad boys? Yeah. Exactly. That's awesome. So when, was that, I guess, a few questions. Working in that point specifically, was that like with the chemicals themselves? And I can only imagine, was it like a dirty plant or was it like fairly clean with the chemical handling that turned it into the material? For what they processed, the plant was actually quite clean. I mean, it was still a manufacturing facility that was that was on the older side. Mm -hmm. So not everything was perfect painted white like it is in our facility. Yeah. By any means. But they did a good job about keeping the floors clean and everything. Okay. So I thought it was clean for what we processed, mm -hmm. kept up with the success and everything, which is nice. Right, right. Yeah. And when you hear about casting facilities, just in general, your mind goes to like, icky dark like <laughs> a scary place so that's it's interesting to hear other industries are completely completely different so southern wisconsin completely different than both washington and arizona did you have any sort of like assumptions or mental preparation that this was going to be a different culture and you chose to go there or was it more so like this is where the opportunity is and that's where i'm going Pretty much where the opportunity is, and let's try something new. Okay. My partner at the time was from that area, from the Midwest. Oh. So for him, it was returning back to kind of where he, he was in high school and where he grew up. So it wasn't that much of a change for him. But for me, I was completely unprepared for the culture shock. It's very different in southern Wisconsin, which is a very rural area, compared to where I grew up and where I went to school. Pretty urban. Honestly, the thing that was most like bizarre to me or noticeable was when I would go into the grocery store, people would stare at me and I couldn't quite figure out first why. And then I think I realized why. And I was like, okay, that's a little bit different, but meaning specifically <laughs> you were Asian American. Yes. Did not look like I'm from there. Right? Got it. So everyone's like, who are you? What are you doing? You here? left your overalls at home. Like, go back and get them. <laughs> just a really bizarre. Yeah. I just remember being stared at when I was walking through the Piggly Wiggly. Yeah. I don't feel very comfortable here. Which is such a contrast from what you hear about outside looking like, oh, Midwesterners are so sweet and kind and helpful and like, love you and then you experience this cold out outside or experience seems so interesting yeah there's this principle there that comes from scandinavia and i think i've i've heard it described as being applicable to the midwest and okay. that's a principle called the ante law okay spelled j-a-n-t-e and it's the kind of this old country mentality and culture where everyone kind of keeps the status quo you 
part of the herd, part of the community. Don't try to stand out. Don't try to be anything different. Because if you do, then you will kind of be shunned for it. Interesting. And it's a way to kind of maintain harmony and everything. But being someone who is particularly eccentric and more punky, right? (laughs) This did not fly with me. I was like, you're telling me that good enough is good enough and you don't want to do something better or be something better or encourage other people to be better. Yeah. It was kind of like a, that was a major part of it where it's like, if you tried to do something better, you would be considered like an outcast. Yeah. And it almost sounds like a high school nonsense of like teacher's pet or she just wants to be a know-it-all or something like that. But kind of applied to the real world where you get sort of called out for doing the best the next best thing or like wanting to innovate or whatever it may be is just not accepted yeah at least where i was was a sense of oh no i'm not gonna do that don't don't stir the pot right Right. so that was that was different right some people like that some people thrive in that for me I i couldn't do it i'm like i got I got to learn a lot. I got to meet a lot of some really great people there. But ultimately, about a year and a half in, I'm like, I think I need something else. So one question before we leave Wisconsin, you said your partner was from the Midwest and this was sort of a returning to home. So how did that sort of culture play into what he thought of your personality or your hopes and dreams? Or how did that did that sort of dynamic play into your relationship at all? To be honest, returning back to the Midwest for him ended up being quite traumatic. Mm-hmm. And I think he was dealing with his own demons during this time. And it was it was a difficult time. Our relationship wasn't great, but here we were together in a different area and all we had were each other. But ultimately, he was not in a space that was good for him. Got it. And there was a lot of things from his childhood that were coming up, and mm-hmm. we suffered through that quite a bit. Okay. So no, so not not one or the other. It was just a different scenario altogether where you were you went somewhere where there were sort of all sorts of surprises, both with the culture and your relationship and just not necessarily the best fit long term and maybe not necessarily a future. So you went to a recruiting fair or a job fair situation and conference and met somebody who ultimately ended up bringing to Maine where we are today and how long has it been now five years yeah it's been over five years about five and a half years now wow to Maine. wait when did you start I started in January of 2018. We started at, what day did you start on? The 8th. Did we start on the same oh, day? We did start on the same day. That's amazing. Oh my gosh, yeah. So, yes. That is so cool. I love that. I love it. Okay, so you arrive in Maine and start contrast from Wisconsin, I imagine. What is your first impression? As soon as I drove across the bridge from New Hampshire into Maine and I saw the river there which I cannot pronounce the name to this day but you go over this lorry you go up and you oh get this view over the river and over the ocean over Portsmouth and Kittery 
oh my god i fell in love instantly i was like this is this is gorgeous i felt at home i felt comfortable here Mm -hmm. and you still feel this way five years later yeah wow i think the proximity to the water is really important Mm -hmm. there's something really nice about being near the water right so for our listeners felicia lives in this gorgeous apartment that was was a mill, a textile mill, and they turned these into apartments. And so her view overlooks the water and you can hear the rushing river. And especially, I imagine it gets loud when they open up the dam, like release all the water, more water, whatever. They raise, raise the levels. Definitely Van Budger rain. That thing is raging. I have to close the windows. So it's too loud it's to too sleep. Much. But it is so beautiful and cozy. And so... When you moved to Maine, did you move, when you, I guess, had that experience of like coming over the bridge, were you by yourself or were you with your partner moving here? Or was that just when you came to interview? That was first when I came to interview, but I had the same experience when my partner and I drove in. We So we drove a U-Haul and moved all of our stuff. Moved into Portland at the time, actually. Okay. But had that same sense of feeling. It was winter at the time, but it was still gorgeous. It was Mm -hmm. a bright, sunny day in the wintertime, which... There was like snow on the ground, but it wasn't actively snowing. So it was, mm-hmm. we had come in just between a couple of storms and were able to move into our new place two days before Christmas. Oh, wow. So the first move was to, of course, go out and get a Christmas tree to set up in our new place. So that was a really exciting time mm-hmm. coming to Maine for, for, the next, for the next chapter. Yeah, that's lovely. And so... You're very far away from family now, but, well, I guess when you first moved here and then your sister made her way from Washington out to Maine, so you had a little bit more sense of family here. When was that? So that was, so yes, so actually my sister and her boyfriend ended up moving to Salem, Oregon Mm. for his job, and they did not care for that area. So when I moved out this way, which she she has been to Maine before and loves it, they were trying to figure out how to get out here. And it so happened to be that his work was opening a new facility out this way. So by January of 2020, February of 2020, that time frame, he ended up getting the job and they moved out here too. But of course, it's February 2020. Yeah. And we have just about maybe three weeks, okay, four weeks before things started to really change. So are they still, now that we're through that, are they still thankful that, like, they're still loving the area and, like, sort of getting to experience it for the first time three years later, I imagine? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So they, when they first moved, they actually moved in with us. Mm-hmm. My since bought a home south of Portland and I lived there or was there when they moved over. And we invited them in to stay with us for a while while they were looking for their own home. But since then, they purchased their own place. My sister is a massive gardener, and that woman has, like, an entire farm out there. Yeah. Like, she has, like, a commercial flower garden just about this massive organic garden for, like, veggies and all kinds of stuff. We need to talk about the garden, like, <laughs> deep dive into how did the, this passion arise? How is she so good at it? How are you guys, <laughs> like, such incredible curators together? Like, let's deep, deep dive into all of that. Oh, gosh. I think the love of growing things is innate to who we are as people, especially from our family. So my mom's side of the family are like farmers, right? Okay. So my grandma always had this crazy green thumb. She could grow anything. And we all got that love of growing things. My mom has it too, but she doesn't have the attention span or the time to really worry about it. 
But my sister had gotten into it in her college years and afterwards. One of her best friends actually was like a, I ended up getting like a PhD in botany. But so they would grow things together and like loved growing things. So my sister was the one who really picked it up and Mm -hmm. got good at it. And when she moved into my house, we're stuck inside and she is just extremely jazzed up. She's looking at my yard and saying, look at all this opportunity. You can put a bed right here. This is where the sun goes. And she coached me through being able to start my own garden here and really helped me get it all set up. So while people felt very trapped, it really was a time for us to bond together, learn about gardening, and then grow, go outside and plant it. Yeah. And it was fun because we could see our neighbors walk by. Everyone's walking around because they're at home. And, right. Uh, it's a great way to meet your neighbors and to be outside. So she was the one who really helped helped me get started. And then from there, it just took off. Like, I could not get enough. Yeah. What was the first thing you grew that were you're like, oh, my gosh, my baby is alive and <laughs> thriving. And so everybody's gateway drug is usually always a radish because okay. they grow in like 30 days. And then you get to harvest this like amazing radish mm-hmm. and grow super easy. Yeah. Okay. So it's the radish. Good to know. <laughs> And then from there, just started dabbling. And it's like, it's a really fun way to experiment too, right? It's a pretty low cost investment if you buy a packet of seeds. And then from there, you can see if it doesn't work, does it not work in your environment? But uh, I learned a lot. My favorite podcast on gardening is the Joe Gardner Show. Okay. And would highly recommend it. He is incredibly entertaining. He brings on guests from around the world with so many different, uh, different topics and interests. Fantastic. I learned so much. So I listened to a lot of that too while I was getting started to learn like a lot of the science behind it. And what does he say? He does like the the know-how behind the how-to or something like oh, that. Oh, interesting. He's great. Because the soil plays a huge role, right? And like the acidity of the pH of the soil and like the temperature of the soil. and Yeah, definitely. All the soil health is fortunately being understood a lot better now okay as we move away from kind of this industrial practice that started after the creation of synthetic like ammonium nitrate in the like early 1900s basically so and the commercialization of farming and agriculture after that it really destroyed soil health and a lot of that's returning now which is just fantastic across the country or specifically in farming areas or like everywhere in large agriculture, it's still a major issue, but there's like this new generation of young farmers who are understanding and valuing soil health and mm-hmm. learning how to rebuild rebuild that through regenerative and sustainable practices. As it has to just throwing like fertilizer on it. Okay. Exactly. Synthetic fertilizers, they, there's whole ecosystems that's, that have developed over eons, right, mm-hmm. to grow things. And right. as we learn more about that now and understand the science behind it, we can apply those principles for our own successes. And it's super cool. So my sister is all about this too. She has some of the nicest soil that she's built up over the last few years. And wow. it's just... So how does she keep the soil like alive and like tend to it? Like what does she do? Anything special to her? Or oh, a lot of compost. Okay. Compost, compost, compost. I love it. Yes. She she will she buys a lot of compost and applies it to her garden. Okay. As well as doing good practices like adding mulch to make sure you're holding the moisture in there. Mm. Crop rotation. So I'm hearing there's a side hustle for composting then. <laughs> we can go around to all of our neighbors and get their garbage and compost it <laughs> and then resale. Like where does she get her compost from? She buys it from a, a local nursery in like large quantities. Like 15 yards at a time. And wow. I'm like, oh, this sucks to move, but it's so worth it. Yeah. Is it stinky? 
No. So it's not so properly digested and formulated compost just smells like dirt. Oh, cool. It's all about balance. So if it's unbalanced, and yes, it can be gross and garbagey, but it's just a matter of getting getting the balance right and then it's fine. Yeah, I would encourage everyone to compost. Yes, it up. Cut, this is <laughs> Please the, the action. The call to action for this podcast is to compost and sell to your ne- neighbor. Coffee grounds are really good for composting, right? Yes, you can definitely throw coffee grounds in there. Pretty much anything, anything that was once any organic matter can go in. So even like chicken bones or like eggshells, stuff like that. Those actually can go in there. Some people will choose to omit things like chicken bones because they take longer to break down or they attract like wildlife. Mm. So I will tip, I personally used to omit them just because it took a really long time to break down. But you can actually totally throw those in there. Yeah, I guess it might be better to use those for a broth or something like that. Yeah, and honestly, if you do use them in a broth, then they'll break down and then it's easier for them to compost. So break out the instant pot. But what is, are you guys into hydroponic? gardening at all or not yet honestly i i personally find it a lot more tedious and not worth the effort okay one beautiful thing about maine is there are so many gardeners here Mm. of all ages of all backgrounds everybody loves to garden and so some of one of my coworkers gets into hydroponics and he was telling me about his entire setup for like tomatoes Mm -hmm. and i'm like Fred, this sounds amazing, but at the same time, why don't you just put it in the dirt? <laughs> but some people love to understand how how to get, get the chemicals and everything just right or the nutrients just right, and they find it much more efficient. I personally love to dig my hands in the dirt still. Yeah, yeah. It's so, yeah, it's, there's something so just, sounds dumb, but like earthy about it. You're like <laughs> connected. There's the whole grounding phase that's, I guess, re, what's the word for it? It's like kicking off again where I guess in the 70s and 80s and probably throughout time, like grounding has been a practice. And now all of the young millennials are like, oh, I heard about this new thing called grounding. Oh my God. connected to the earth. Grounding, yes. yes. Anyway. My dad, I, I have actually a book. It's called Earthing. I think it's somewhere around here that my dad gave me talking about. It is real. Like the the energy I feel like is totally valid. I just think it's funny that. People are like, oh, look at this new thing. And it's like, like that's not new. Like, you know, outside of play. <laughs> and it's take, you take your rubber shoes off and put your feet in the, yeah. feet in the grass. Although we do have ticks out here, which I can understand. But I had a whole tick situation last week, and we won't get into it. I'll tell you later, <laughs> but holy buckets, those things are creepy. That's one of the downsides about being in Maine compared to Washington. Mm-hmm. There were no ticks in Washington. Did you have, but you had the little guys in Arizona. Where I was in, like, the metropolitan area, didn't have to worry about them. Mm-hmm. The most annoying things I had to deal with were mosquitoes. Oh. Because they... In Arizona? Well, around the campus, they would they would still have, like, grass lawns and stuff, yeah. and it, it would leave stagnant water, and then the mosquitoes would just be ferocious. Oh. It was really bad. I, I... Are you one of those people who gets, like, you're... And if there's a group of 10 people, you're the one with all the bug bites? Yes. Me too. Oh, my God. What's and, your blood type? So... I th- I've never been I, so I think it's B positive. Okay. I've never been tested, so I can't be positive. <laughs> and that's the pod, folks. I love it. I love it. God, this I work with a lot of dads. I pretty much am just a dad at this point. <laughs> that's amazing. I'm convinced that blood type has to do with the people who get bit the most. What type are you? 
I'm all negative. Really? Wow. So how does your sister go from gardening? Did the flowers come at the same time as the vegetables or different time? She will do both of them, but she's really been getting into flowers the past couple of years. And we're talking about like the number of seed catalogs and bulb catalogs. This girl gets hundreds, hundreds of different varieties. She loves to experiment with different kinds Mm -hmm. and to research what she thinks will grow, how to grow them. So she's very much into learning about that, too. By school, she's a chemist. So she went to school for chemistry and works as a chemist now today. So she is fully into the science also and loves to learn about it. So does... What does she do with all of the flowers? Give them away? She makes a lot of bouquets. She wants to learn more about how to do things like dry flowers and make wreaths and pretty Mm -hmm. things this year. Honestly, though, sometimes I go over there and they're just like rotting in the garden. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. She doesn't. So she doesn't pick all of them is what I'm saying, because sometimes time gets away from you. Yeah. Or she just wants them to be out there for for beauty and for the bees and stuff. Right. Oh, yeah. I bet that's huge for the bees. Yeah. So, but letting go of that, like, that feeling that you have to go and harvest anything, no. You can let them stay there. You can let them be and go through their life cycle without needing to pick them. But, ooh, I bet that's some therapy right there. It's (laughs) just, like, not putting aside the perfectionism. Like, I made this flower and I must enjoy 100% of that versus, like, no, just let the flower be the flower. It is so, that is so true. I think, especially growing up, for all of us, we had this... You drilled into you, particularly from the Korean side, is like this incessant need to be perfect and perfectionism and everything has to be a hustle and you have to do this. Go, 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 go. And the garden is one place where you can allow yourself to relinquish all that and accept that nothing's going to be perfect. Things will live and die as they please, no matter what you do. And it's your space to go and play. Yeah. And experience that and just kind of let go of all the troubles of the day. And I think that's what, that's one of her major coping mechanisms for things and anxieties that she may have or issues with the day or things that come up from her past. The garden is very, very healing. And I found the same experience from when I, after she moved out, I still had my garden and I could grow things in my garden, go out there and deal with a lot of extremely stressful times that were, that were happening in this kind of like COVID era for me. I didn't really talk about it, but my partner and I had actually started a food truck business. Oh. And we had gotten married just before that, before it okay. started. Okay. So in 2019. And come 2020, everything shut down mm-hmm. and business shut down and failed. Mm-hmm. And that was a big a big shift and a big turn in his mental health. And the next year or so was really, really difficult. But I was able to go out into my garden and to be able to use that space for my own processing and management of emotion as I was pretty much functioning as a caregiver almost at that point because of how bad things had gotten. And the garden is just a beautiful place where you can go and be and get out any frustration or just... I don't know, stop. It's like a stop and smell the roses, right? Right. There's literally roses there that That's you can so stop funny. and you appreciate. Right. For me, it's mostly growing a bunch of type of peppers. I have a big pepper head. Okay. And grew like 30 plus types of peppers. Like spicy peppers, bell peppers. Oh, yeah. All of them in different types of soils and test conditions to see what grows for your climate. 
So it's like you get to be a mad scientist out there too, which is also like really fun for mm-hmm. nerds like us. For sure. How did you process through this loss maybe differently than the failed restaurant that he was going to be a part of and then that sort of didn't happen in Washington? I think because this was so much more personal, mm-hmm. because it was something that he started, it was the worst his depression had ever been. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen it so bad. And I didn't know what to do besides be there and utilize mental health resources that we had available to us. Mm-hmm. It was, frankly, very dark times. But I think because there was that personal element and that, that like utter feeling of failure, how do you process that? How do you get beyond that when you're already prone to having depression? Right. Is very sort of just a trigger that spirals you. And it's not like there's a light at the end of the tunnel because you poured everything into this thing and it's gone. And now what? Exactly. How do you pick yourself back up? And it took it took a really long time, but I don't think he fully recovered from that. And um, frankly, the the relationship continued to deteriorate from there. It was very... Change was happening slowly within me as I started to recognize that no matter how much effort you put into this, how much effort and hope that you have, sometimes all people can do is their best and sometimes their best isn't good enough. And that's kind of where our situation ended up as. I credit him for doing his best. I know I did my best. I did everything Mm -hmm. that I could. And at the end, It was a matter of realizing that we would be better off going our separate ways. So it sounded like it was relatively mutual then, at least. I think at the end it was mutual, but it was like a game of chicken for the longest time. Who was going to actually pull the plug? Got it. And I ended up initiating it. And... As expected, with anyone in that situation would have a very difficult time. He, again, had a very difficult time. But I think there's a sense of relief there because when two people are mismatched in their expectations and what they want, Mm -hmm. there's always that tension and that feeling that neither person can be themselves. And I like to I like to imagine that there is a large sense of relief that comes with realizing you can be yourself. Right. When you're not with someone who's not a good fit. Interesting. So you guys don't are not in touch at all anymore. No. And that's probably like the healthiest for both of you. Yeah. If I if I had to text him or reach out to him for something, I know he would reply and things are cordial between us. Okay. But I think it's easier to regain yourself and to find out where you want to move on to if the contact is minimal. And so you said this past season, so I guess all of this sort of became official this past fall moving into the spring and so this has been in time for turning in and looking inside and then pivoting to regrowth and rebirth that maybe comes with the season a little bit (laughs) but you said that the word grace has sort of been a journey for you and all this and tell me more about that specifically yes so Essentially, when we decided to divorce and our relationship ended, when you make that decision, you have to confront 
how your entire worldview and who you thought you were as a person has changed or how it wasn't what you thought it was. And you have to confront that. And it's almost like looking back at yourself through a different lens. It really is. And having to forgive yourself for perceived mistakes or shame that you carry for getting to this point, right? Nobody wants to get divorced. Nobody wants things to fail or end. And to deal with that sense of failure was really, really hard. When you grow up with a sense of perfectionism Mm -hmm. and needing to be perfect and to have a failure, unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable, right? Right. You lose everything. You're like, well, okay, this means I'm a terrible person and I'm not worth anything and I'll never be successful. And it's just like spirals into this like negative self-talk that you can't really get out of because through your mind's eye of perfectionism, all of the negative things you're telling yourself, you feel like there's some truth to, whether it's like the constructive thing to tell yourself or necessarily like the right thing to say, you're still in this pattern of hate towards yourself. And you're like, well, this is true. So I can keep doing and you never sort it it takes a lot to get out of and it takes external help to get out of as well absolutely and I can tell by the way you describe it it's something that we both experienced and self-hatred for some reason is it is this like perpetual cycle and you tell yourself I'm terrible and I'm miserable but I deserve to feel this way Mm -hmm. because of I'm terrible and miserable Mm -hmm. right but it just keeps going and going And to break free of that talk, which I realized was part of who I was this entire time, like up until this point in my life. That's how I've always talked to myself. Mm -hmm. And it was so unhealthy. And I'm like, I just stop and say, Felicia, why would you talk to yourself like this? Would you talk to any of your other loved ones or people that you care about in the same way? And I would say, well, of course not. But Mm -hmm. to me, it was acceptable because I didn't love myself. There wasn't the sense of that you could be, that you could make mistakes and that you could learn and grow and that that's okay. And it's a concept I really had to work hard on. And I really beat myself up for for a long time. And in the initial stages of this, the first person that I told that things really weren't okay to was my sister. I came clean to her and she had sensed that things weren't well, but she didn't understand to what degree because I didn't want to share that. There's a lot to it that I won't share here. But she was the one to basically catch me as I was falling. Got it. And she welcomed me with open arms and told me that it's okay and that we'll get through this and just helped me learn how to set boundaries and to talk to myself better and begin to develop that concept of like self love. And for the longest time, I didn't understand what that was. But once. Okay, this is kind of a side tangent here. Yeah. So we talked about how we met in Japan, right? Right. Prior to us going on that trip, I went to Japan two previous times. The first trip was when I was on the other side of the world. And in this environment, I realized how I felt so much better and safer and happier and respected. And I said, why don't I feel like that normally? And that's when I realized that it's part of my home environment and I I needed to make a change. So that's what kind of like what shook me and got me to initiate this thing that I've been dreading to initiate this whole time, right? The divorce. So by the time I went back to Japan again, 
this process was already started and I was learning how to handle the shift and go through the logistics of everything, the separation, legal stuff. What mm-hmm. am I doing with this stuff? What am I doing with myself? That mm-hmm. type of thing. And I said, what second trip to Japan? I've been going through hell. I'm going to take a week off after the business portion and go solo traveling. And I have never done this before, but if for some reason, I'm like, yeah, this would be fine. This would be easy. When it came to the end of the work portion, I pretty much had like a mental breakdown in the hotel where I was like, I can't do this. I can't. You're telling me I have to be with myself. I hate myself. I don't want to be with myself for a whole week. But fortunately, one of my good friends had sensed that something wasn't right. And he happened to be like a really big fan of Japan and loves to go explore. And he's like, you're in Japan. Like, what's going on here? And I talked to him for a while and explained to him that I was like just terrified. Mm -hmm. And he helped talk me through it. And then... I ended up calling my therapist and she helped me talk through it. But then most importantly, I talked to my brother too. So when was the last time you guys had had maybe like a longer than 10 minute conversation? With my brother, I had told him about the divorce and what was going on. But because he lives on the other side, we didn't keep in contact quite as much. The last time that I'd really had long conversations with him, besides when I told him that I was initiating this, was back when he was visiting Maine in July. I spent a lot of time together. And that's kind of when I hit my, our relationship hit our low. And there's, there's a lot of things going on at that time. So him and I had some heart to heart at that point, but the relationship with your partner was going through. And so you were spending like really good quality time with your brother at the same time. Correct. Yeah. While he was out there and he could kind of sense that things weren't okay. And, but with during talking with my brother and explaining like, okay, I think, I think I can do this. And he's telling me about his experiences and what's going on and I just just being able to connect as adults and to to be vulnerable to someone and basically to put that trust into someone as you're telling them what they're what you're going through because remember up until this point I really didn't tell anybody anything right. I barely just told my sister who's my closest confidant what was going on and I remember so not even your mom no she still doesn't fully know but to protect the mother fair enough fair <laughs> enough yeah <laughs> this is why we have siblings and we can share things yeah. with but so yeah, i was talking to my brother and as i'm talking to him this sense of peace and feeling that everything was going to be okay started to wash over me mm-hmm. and i realized that i was starting to forgive myself for everything that had happened and that i was going to be allowing myself to enjoy my time going forward. I see. And not feeling guilty or like looking over your shoulder or like really just taking a breath and like being able to not worry about when you have to breathe in again to get air. Yes. And I don't know exactly what shifted. I think I had to kind of go through this process of talking to people and to basically confess that I wasn't okay, Mm -hmm. telling them that I wasn't okay. Yeah. And through that provided a lot of relief as I felt that my loved ones were there for me when I, now that I'm finally honest with them. Was that a surprise to you, their reaction? Looking back, it's not a surprise, but at the time, yeah, I was because I'm always like terrified to share with anybody or I was really terrified because there's a lot of trust that's there. And it's like, what do they think? What if they think less of me? What if they don't, what if they don't care? What if I burden them with this information? Right. right? But It was exactly what I needed. And in that moment, I finally think I started to understand 
grace and mm-hmm. the feeling of grace to knowing that it's basically the way that I view it is like like a form of forgiveness and love and acceptance for what for who you are and for the things that you experience and the ability to love yourself and to provide yourself that grace and relief to say this is part of your journey to grow it's okay and up until that point I had felt so lost just entirely in life for years like since the beginning since probably our when we were eight years old and our parents sat us around the table and told us the family was breaking up. Wow. Just That's a sense of, of falling. Falling and running away. Yeah. That's what okay. I felt like this entire time. You're just running and running and running. And then finally I had to stop and say that it's okay to stop. Okay. And believing yourself that it's okay to stop too. Exactly. Yeah. Which didn't exist before because that was not acceptable, right? Right. But Because you could tell yourself it's okay to stop, but you're not going to feel that way instead it's a lie that you're telling yourself and until you actually start to believe like no you are really you're safe now it's gonna be okay exactly and it's a really weird shift but I think you have to really try to go through it if if you're someone such as myself who had to go through this shift there's no quick and easy way the only way is to go through it yes and being able to depend on honestly really my siblings through this time period as well as my my close friends but having that connection and that sense of security was huge to be able to move through this i couldn't do it alone mm-hmm. i tried to do it alone for 10 years look how well that worked out right Yikes. you need a refund for those 10 years and you need oh, like, gosh. Burr, burr, burr. <laughs> i really wish i could but there's there's plenty of things i learned along the way right for that sure. i can that i can appreciate and look back on and say okay well well, she was some young punk girl who was super stubborn and thought she could do everything by herself. And it's like, no, nah, that's not really the case. But right. No, good on you for trying. Right. <laughs> and and that's still part of you as well, that like determination and drive. And I think that probably is a huge differentiating factor in terms of like what the rest of your life is going to look like, because there's sort of a fork in the road, which you chose a long time ago to go the the positive rebirth regrowth route whereas you could have also gone that this is a failure I'll never get better I'm just gonna carry on and stumble or like keep running and so now this is for the better there's still a lot to unpack and melt away but you're I guess it's like a bright and sunny direction that you're headed in sometimes I, w- I would I would say so I would mean I gosh gosh I would hope so right it's like if you Spent so much of your time not being happy. I feel I have a responsibility to live up to my namesake. Felicia means happiness. And how strange it is that I wasn't happy and depressed for so long. But on the outside, that's how I present myself, right? Because I don't want to A, burden everybody else with my own traumas and my mm-hmm. own issues. And B, it's always a mask that you put on, right? Right. I don't want to continue living that way. Through this process, there's been a lot of me having to trust other people. And I think the nice thing about the siblings that I have is that I can trust them in a way that I wanted to trust other people but couldn't up until this point. Okay. And by starting, by looking toward them, I realize it's been there all along. Yeah. It's beautiful. And they really helped us a lot. Mm-hmm. They helped me along a lot. So do you, I guess, so you were able to 
reconnect with your sister as she moved out there and then trusting her with the experience that you're going through and then same with your brother out of curiosity are your brother and sister very close i would say that they as we get older we all become more close the number of times that they may pick up the phone and call each other probably less than when i try to call my brother and just have a chat with him they grew up much closer in age so they were more similar my sister got to deal with my brother through his wild and crazy phases as a young adult and everything. And I think she got, she quickly kind of learned to establish her own boundaries and be a little bit more fed up with him mm-hmm. and some of his antics. Your sister sounds <laughs> like the wise, wise sage that we all need. Like, <laughs> tapping us on the shoulder like, hey, it, it's okay. Also, don't do that. Also, I still oh. love you. Oh my God. Yeah, she is totally like, yeah, she's, she's very wise. And she knows how to set up boundaries because she's learned what it's like to live when you don't have them. And she was the first, I think, to really establish that and go through her own journey in her mid-20s to be like, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to let people take advantage of me. And I really respect her for that because it's taken me a lot longer to get to that point. So did you see her sort of shift in that way or was it more... Like when you guys had conversations and she told you about experiences, you saw how like the experiences changed. Like how did you get to see that through her? I only realized that she had gone through this journey Mm. as I was going through my divorce, my shift, because we would spend long hours talking about things that I was going through. And then she would share how she went through similar things just in terms of setting up boundaries or how she got to where she is now where she doesn't let other people affect her in that way that I was letting them affect me and through this she would share her own experiences and what she did and I learned so many more things about her past from times when we were really disconnected up until this point my sister and I had not lived together for 14 years wow So we almost went our separate ways for 14 years and just seeing each other here and there a couple of times for holidays or this and that. We talk on the phone, but it's not the same as being together. Right. So I really had to kind of catch up on 14 years of where have you been? Wow. What's your life been like? As she see me, she, as she is seeing me and coaching me through this terrible time in my life, Mm -hmm. transformative time. And we would listen to a lot of self-help books together, help self-help audio books. Okay. And we listen to some ones about parents or about this type of disorder or this type of just self-help books, right? Yeah. yeah. And we would listen to them together and sometimes something would come up and we're both staring at each other and be like, oh my God, it's our father. Oh, yeah. Like, oh yeah. my God, it's Mara. Oh my God, that's you. Right, right. And so through this, we would bond together on like realizing who we are and some more about why we are the way that we are. So then we can then hope to correct that or just forgive ourselves for things that we feel uncomfortable with ourselves about. And it's just, it was a lot of fun. So a lot of this happened during the winter time, which the main winters are long and they are cold, but they kind of force you to retreat and do a lot of Mm self-reflection. And that's what we used our winters for, right? The days are short. You can't go outside and garden. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot to do. It's cold. Mm -hmm. But you have these long nights in which you can really bond. So we sit by her pellet stove. Oh, lovely. Listening to these books. Maybe doing something like crocheting together. Mm -hmm. Like a video game. And just just, uh, spending a lot of time healing together. And then sometimes we get really like 
we would really, really miss our brother. So we'd call and be like, hey, Furman, we're thinking of you. We're listening to this book. Like, you got to listen to this, too. Mm -hmm. So then we'd be talking on speakerphone together with him for like an hour. Oh, that's awesome. So it's and and it's sort of I think you mentioned this earlier when you and your sibling or whomever who've gone through something together, you both hear somebody else say it like the narrator and you're like, oh, okay, it's okay to talk about that. Or like, oh, that is a real thing. Huh? Like. I can relate to that. Can you relate to that? And you're like, oh, man, we could both relate to that. This puts really, it's not just in our heads. And then you feel a little less crazy. Like, am I just making up all of these things that happened? You're like, no, it's, it happened. And it's also okay. It's so true. And like more than half the time, I don't know about you, but like more than half the time, you don't even realize that this is something mm-hmm. that you can't even articulate what it is that you're feeling or what that you've experienced until somebody else tells it back to you. And then you're like, oh. Yeah. Duh. Right. Right. But it's definitely very validating and very healing. And part of that, it plays into that concept of grace, I think, where you Mm -hmm. can say, okay, like, this is okay. You can understand it, look at it, forgive it, and continue Mm -hmm. that sense of like, it's okay. Right. Right. And you look back on it like, okay, this is a lesson, not like this is something that I disdain anymore. It gets washed away a little bit. And that's part of the regrowth and healing as well. What is your relationship like with your mom now as an adult? I mean, oh, as an adult. So I've always really loved like, my mom and I've always been pretty close. Mm-hmm. I can call her anytime. I mean, during this podcast, she gave me a call. When it comes to talking about really deep emotions and feelings, it's still very difficult. So we've never had that relationship growing up. Mm-hmm. And she is just not really like that. I think it's definitely a very generational thing also. Yes. Up until Oprah, nobody talked about their emotions, right? Yeah. Especially in Korean culture, nobody talks about their emotions. It's a sign of weakness or blah, blah, blah. It's changing now, I think, with the younger generation. But so she's still definitely very set in those ways. But through this process and me telling her more about sometimes I'd call her crying, say, mom, not okay. And she would tell me, you know, it's going to be okay. You just have to do this or this. And through my divorce, I understood so much more about what she went through during mm-hmm. her divorce when I was a kid. Wow. And so many similarities played out. Mm-hmm. And I think that gave me a whole new perspective and appreciation for what my mom had gone through. And it definitely brought us closer together. Are we connected on a totally emotional level now? Still, no. I don't think we ever will be. But you're able to look at your parent and accept them for who they are and say, I understand your circumstances. You were just a byproduct of your situation too. And I know that you tried your best. Right. Was it always what I needed as a kid? No, but I understand it and I can give you grace and forgiveness about that right without having to hold on to any sort of animosity so same i guess question for you with your dad it seems like generally you're closer with your mom anyway but with your dad moving to california when you were younger like are you guys still in touch what does that relationship look like interestingly so yes so growing up i was not nearly as close with my dad i think i blamed him a lot for the divorce. And I sided with my mom a lot in that regard. And that carried on until I started going through my divorce process. And I started talking with my sister. And she's like, I align better with dad than I do mom. And I'm like, you align better with dad than mom? And she's like, yeah, dad would always listen to me and listen to my emotions. And like, 
actually be there. Mom wouldn't do that. I'm like, mm. mom does that more for me in her own kind of stoic Korean way. Right. But I always felt more of a connection there. And I realized how my sister's experience with our parents is completely different from my experience with my parents. And how our brother's experience with our parents is completely different. We're all raised by different parents. That's so wild. And that's part of one of the one of the words that really inspired the podcast being Sonder, like recognizing that everybody's living life through their own experience. And the contrast that you just described is a perfect example that you have the same DNA the from mom and dad. And yes, they were years separating you, but you went through completely different experiences. Completely different. It was so weird. So being able to talk to your siblings as adults too, you can kind of share different experiences. And you'd be like, they did that when you were growing up? Yeah, they would do. And I'm like, they would do this. Really? Wow. So you could kind of learn how the dynamic was different and how as adults, how your relationships with the parents ended up being different. Yeah. And as I got, as I went through this process, I got to see my dad more through my sister's eyes. Okay. And part of my goal with that is also to kind of reestablish my trust with him and my love with him mm -hmm. because it is definitely strained for the longest time I, as I embodied my mom's emotions a lot. Interesting. But as I grow older and think about this, right? Like my dad grew up with his own set of challenges and his own, his own trials and tribulations. And to realize that he was just doing the best that he could do at the time too, while struggling with his own things, creates a lot of explanation and backstory to how our lives were that the way they were. That when I needed to reach out to him, we would talk a lot more frequently during this process. He'd call me to check up on me. we talk on talk a lot on all the weekends. I realized that he was always there and willing to connect with me and to be, as my sister described, which is like an emotional support, I was never able to let him in. Interesting. I think because I was embodying my mom too much, that stubborn, staunch punk kid, right? Just like, no, I'm fine. I'm right. Pull myself up on my bootstraps. I don't need you. And in reality, I did. I just mm -hmm. never allowed that relationship to get better. And it also wasn't on display for you to pick up. If he moves away, physically, you're not together as much. You're not able to experience that emotional openness from him. And so now it's sort of like learning that after the fact a little bit. I would say so. I mean, honestly, a lot of the emotional openness that I've experienced with both parents has been over the phone. <laughs> and I wonder if that helps. I mean, because they're on the other coast. I'm over here. But gosh, can you imagine not being able to pick up the phone and call somebody 300 or 3,000 miles away? That's wild. Yeah. And maybe that's almost good because if you grew up like I did, which is where emotions and feelings weren't really talked about, there's a kind of a sense of awkwardness and discomfort with that. And perhaps over the phone, it's easier to share things mm -hmm. when you don't have to look somebody in the eye and sit here and right. feel that kind of discomfort as you're talking about something that's almost taboo or was taboo. So since then, my relationship with my father's a lot better as we've, as essentially that I've forgiven him for what I perceived was like his faults and failures growing up. As an adult, you can understand that that's not the case, but I don't think I would have had that same perspective 
had I not shared so much time with my sister talking about these things. Right. As well as our brother, too. So having those different perspectives is extremely important to understanding the entire system here. Right. Right. And it sort of helps. It, for me, at least, empathy has been hard for me to really embrace. And I think I grew up selfish a little bit out of like being in survival mode but also that that formalized into not being as kind as I could have been or like a friend to somebody who was a friend to me maybe as well as not loving somebody as much as they loved you and going through the experience of learning about oh this is why I felt this way is like helping you see people differently, maybe be more empathetic to like somebody who's just so frustrating at work. You're like, okay, well, maybe they've gone through some stuff too. But maybe, I don't know, not always that they deserve a pass, but maybe sometimes it's helpful to at least be a less angry person. That, <laughs> but maybe we'll try to give them a pass today and see what happens. But. Yeah, it's definitely, I do the same thing at work where, or just in general, if somebody like just pisses you off, you're like, what? Maybe they did this or that. Maybe they really, I don't know, their wife just cheated on them and they're going through some stuff right now. And you're like, whatever you're going through, I hope it gets better. But also get your work done. Yes. So let's move into maybe some more lighter, quicker question. Okay. And we'll start to wrap up. First question, do you believe in aliens? Are we talking like little tiny microbes or are we talking like full sentient, like green creatures? Full sentient, like intelligence from outer space. Oh, gosh. I do believe in them. I don't think they are anywhere near our universe or our like area of the galaxy. I don't think they'll ever get here. Interesting. So I don't think anything that's UFO is actually aliens. I think okay. it's probably just, I don't know, foreign countries. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, technologies that nobody yes. knows Statistically about. speaking, I do believe that there are some type of alien out there. Okay. I don't think we'll ever see them, though. Okay, not yet. What about, do you believe in ghosts? Ooh, ghosts? I don't. I no. don't believe in ghosts, which is interesting. Creeds are very, there's a lot of superstition. Yeah, yeah it makes sense in culture, too, but no, I don't believe in ghosts. No, no. Okay, so last question. If money were no object and you could wake up tomorrow with that sense of freedom, what would your perfect day look like? If I could do anything I wanted to tomorrow? Yes. Honestly, I feel like I'd want to go travel somewhere. Money were no object. I think I would want to go on a plane and go travel somewhere. Okay. Right now, I want to go back to Washington. Oh, okay. Because I haven't been there for over five years. Oh, wow. And I think I've been avoiding going back for a little bit. So I want to go, I don't know, go see my mom, go see my brother. Perfect day. Yeah. I think it would be going back to Seattle and just driving around a bit and seeing how it's changed since yeah. I've left. So is, is there any way that you could make that perfect day like in your near future? Well, I traveled a lot recently, so yeah. I need to come down a bit. My boss is threatening to, he said I have a, he must clip my wings because I could travel. Oh my goodness, that's so funny. But maybe next year. I don't know if I'll make it back there before then. 
the most beautiful time in Seattle is definitely like July. Nothing is better than driving up Mount Rainier to paradise and seeing all the wildflowers that happen like early to mid-July there. That to me is my paradise. Wow. To be up on the mountains and to see all these wildflowers and just walk in this like magical land. That's I think that's what I'm homesick for right now. Oh, I love that. So that would also be part of my perfect day. I'd want to see, okay, if there's enough time by the time I get on the plane, fly all the way out there, would be to go go to Mount Rainier. Yeah. Mount Rainier National Park. Bring home some flowers for your sister. Sea <laughs> yeah. feeds. I wish. I don't think I can take them out of the national park, but maybe they'll sell oh, some packets or something. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, we will not disclose whether or whether or not we propagated Washington <laughs> Mount Ranger flowers. But thank you so much for opening your heart and talking through who you are and how you got here. And this has been such a lovely experience. And I'm so thankful for you. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. And I hope what we've talked about is of interest and um, fits the theme of your podcast, which I wish you the best of luck on because this is awesome. And I really admire that you're you're doing this because it takes a lot of guts, I think. A lot of grit. Thank you. <laughs> yes. If all else fails, I can just delete them all and sell my microphone, but we'll see how it goes. So thank you. Thank you.